the eight precepts, you know, practice a bit. So, as you know, we're going to start by chanting together the three refuges and the five or the eight precepts. And we'll do, we'll do it together and we'll do the precepts in English. But just to say, if you feel like on the full moon taking the eight precepts, you can. And don't think you can get away with just taking it tonight after the day's over. If you take it tonight, then take it for tomorrow. Otherwise, that's really pathetic. <laughs> but there's no need to take it. I just wanted to say that's a traditional thing that's done. Someone called me today from India, from Tiruvannamalai, just to leave a message that it was an incredibly beautiful full moon there. And I should go out and look at it. Of course, it was noon here. But just maybe you want to, if it's not too cloudy, go have a look. So let's char- start by chanting together Namotasa, the three refuges, and the five or the eight precepts. <clears throat> Namotasa Bhagavato Adahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Adahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Sadananga Chami Dhammang Sadananga Chami Sangang Sadananga Chami Dutiampi Buddhang Sadananga Chami Dutiampi Dhammang Sadananga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Sadananga Chami Datiampi Buddhang Sadananga Chami Datiampi Dhammang Sadananga Chami Datiampi Sangang Sadananga Chami I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from any kind of intentional sexual activity. I undertake the training to refrain from speaking falsely. I undertake the training to refrain from using intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And then just those on the eight. I undertake the training to refrain from eating at an inappropriate time. I undertake the training to refrain from dancing, singing, music, shows, from the use of garlands, perfumes, cosmetics, ornaments, and adornments. I undertake the training to refrain from using high and luxurious seats and beds. Through my observance of ethical conduct, may I realize the highest peace. So tonight, what I want to talk about is a little bit Vipassana 101. So I hope you can bear with me. Uh, I want to talk about uh, just some reflections on the nature of insight and what supports the arising of insight. This is, after all, insight practice, Vipassana practice. So a lot of times people come and say, you know, so where are the insights already? or as a real sense of struggle of looking for something, waiting for something, practicing in order to acquire. And really, just to look at what is actually the nature of insight. What are we talking about when we talk about insight? In the suttas and also the commentaries, it's spoken of three levels or three types of knowledge 
all of which are valid and useful. We know how to use them together. And the first level or type is what you could call information, or sutta mayapanya in Pali, that which is heard, that which is learned. So that's important to have the right information to begin to do anything to support us in what we're doing. The second level, called chinta mayapanya in Pali, means really um, using that knowledge with our intelligence in a way of thinking, reflection, contemplation. And that's also extremely useful and helpful. It's kind of the information isn't just something that's retained without any meaning, but we've really reflected, contemplated, come to have a deeper intellectual understanding of it. Chinta still means using with thought. Now, for many of us, that level, uh, that thought level, chinta mayapani, reflection level, is either one, what we've grown up basically thinking is the, that's how you learn everything. So we're kind of really stuck there. Or then we come to practice and see that we're stuck there, so we start to hate that level, you know, and think we don't want to contemplate, we're not supposed to think. And both of those, of course, are uh, exaggerated reactions to understand how to use thought, reflection, contemplation with accurate information is very helpful. The third level, bhavana mayapanya, bhavana really means a mental cultivation, is really the level of insight, of insight knowledge, of really that that uh, deeply understanding what is true. So that's, uh, just want to talk about that a little. And you can see in this way of uh, delineating three different levels, three different ways of understanding that insight knowledge is different from thinking about contemplating um, using our intelligence. You know, and we often think of insight as some either an experience to get or some kind of knowledge or information that we get and understand and can hold on to. But it's really, I like the, the translation of um, samaditi as right view, that it's almost, to me, it's quite literal, viewing accurately perceiving accurately, right view, not holding some idea that everyone else agrees with, but actually perceiving in a moment things the way they are. This is actually the shift of perception is what is how one of the ways I like to describe insight. It's been very helpful to me. It's a, not a result of thinking. But you all know those moments, you could call them an aha moment, where suddenly, ah, you just perceive something from another angle in a different way. You didn't get there by thinking about it, though of course we think about it afterwards, which is fine. So it's some knot or some tangle or some view in our mind of how we're looking at something, perceiving an experience without even knowing it, somehow unknots. And it's, oh, you know, you're trying to solve a problem in life and suddenly you see it from a different angle. That's a moment of insight. It's a radical shift of perspective that then may have uh, an effect on our mind stream, on how we understand and on how we respond to situations. It doesn't mean that moment of shift of perspective stays that way, but it's opened another door, another way of perceiving that maybe we didn't even suspect was possible, and it can change everything. Very simple example that I like to use. It's, I mean, no example is exactly full enough, but this gives a sense. You know those, um, those magic eye graphic drawings that they have whole books of them that are just different colored graphic drawings, and if you look at it long enough in the right way, 
suddenly out of this uh, graphic design, uh, a specific image will kind of, as if spring out, and it looks like a 3D image. And what was just graphics and nothing special suddenly becomes two hockey players or a dinosaur or a flying saucer or whatever, right? You know what I mean? And how do you do that? You know, you can't, you can open the book and say, I want to see the dinosaur. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And when you first try to do it, you know, we're trying, we're looking, we're, we're trying to see, and we don't see it. In fact, my mother, bless her, could never see those things. It used to make her so crazy because she'd keep trying, trying. What's in that one? I can't see it. I can't see it. Get tighter, tighter, tighter. Does that sound familiar? And how does it work? When there's a, a steady, you know, you can't look away and look back, look away and look back. It has to be a steady, connected attention, but relaxed, without trying, without looking for a particular thing, but just relaxed, steady, focused attention, without any wanting, without any assumptions, and suddenly, boom, there's the dinosaur. Now, what I think is interesting, the way it, it kind of you know, relates to a, a, a Dhamma insight, now, the dinosaur was always there, right? I mean, when we're, the shift of perception didn't make something be there that wasn't there, did it? Or did it? I don't know. Don't believe me. But then, when we stop looking in that way, it goes away again. And there's just the graphics, red and yellow, whatever it is. But having seen that, we know that there's at least two different ways of perceiving that particular flat piece of paper and colors. And if someone else comes and says, no, you're crazy, you don't have to get upset about it. You know, there's two different ways. And so it doesn't have to stay. The insight doesn't mean it has to stay that way. In fact, it won't stay that way all the time. But seeing that there's a, another reality, or maybe a more accurate way of perceiving, eh, that's the, oh. That's what impermanence is like. Oh, that's how I could solve this problem. I mean, you all know this, right? And part of our problem is then we think it should stick. It should stay. Because, of course, even though, as I said this morning, we talk about impermanence, really we think, I have one insight, I've seen it, okay, that's it, right? You've seen through that personality pattern, well, maybe a hundred times by now. Aren't you convinced? It's enough already. It should go away. You've seen how painful craving can be, and I'm sure more than once. And sometimes, on some level, it can keep being a surprise that we get caught again. Because there's this sense, once we've seen it, finished. Or else the fear that if I really perceive the impermanent, unsolid nature of everything, every moment, how am I going to function? If I really perceive that there's no intrinsic, unchanging, self-existent being here, how am I going to be able to find the bathroom when this, when this ends? You know, I'm not going to be able to function in the world. But that's what's kind of cool about the way insight works, both kind of levels of reality, if you will, are still perceivable. It's just that mostly we've been going through our life only perceiving in the one way and not even having a clue on a deep level of what the other perception, if there's only two, there's mil many, mil many millions, is possible. So the, we can't hold on to the actual perception of insight, as soon as we start trying to hold on, there's clinging in the mind, it tightens everything up. As soon as you try to hold on to seeing that dinosaur, everything kind of just clocks back into how it used to be. But it has an effect. That clear seeing has a deep effect on our mind stream, and we trust it. We know it. This is really what we call verified faith. We know for ourselves. Oh, this is how it is, even when that's not our perception. Like, I know for myself that 
one way of perceiving this body is as a completely fluid arising and passing moments of sensation with no shape, no boundaries, no self at all. I know that. Is that my experience right now? Definitely not. It's really very solid, all too solid, all too here. But I know this is one perception and that reality is not bound up in or limited by that perception. So it has a very strong effect. Something has changed. With each moment of insight, our views, our assumptions, our unconscious description of ourself and reality is not quite so fixed. And there might be a more of a possibility to respond appropriately in the next situation. Now, of course, when an insight arises like that, often a huge amount of energy comes with it. And it's quite natural and nothing wrong that then the mind tends to think about, describe the inside, explain it, connect it with things in the past and the future. And to some extent, that's fine. That's just normal. But it's helpful to keep aware of the energy and the thoughts and notice when it's turned from the useful quality of, uh, of wisdom, that second quality, reflection, contemplation, where the thoughts are really in the service of, on that level, understanding the insight better. And when it shifts to just energy spinning, and if you're paying attention, you can feel the difference. So, wow, yeah, everything's impermanent. Oh, wow, you know, it's really, it starts to get disconnected. The energy's all over. You're actually not perceiving impermanence at all. You know, you're just spinning and, oh, that was incredibly neat insight. How can I explain it to my friends? Let me get on the email. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's happening now? So the thing with uh, insight, that aha moment, just like anything, is fully present with it. Notice the effects. Notice how it affects the mind stream and let it go. Let it go. I mean, it's going to go. It's already gone. Letting it go really is a, a misnomer. We talk about letting something go that's been gone, you know, forever, how long. Let go of the idea of thinking it's still here and wake up again in this moment. So, so this, this in terms of insight, of course, can happen in terms of anything. In terms of the Dhamma, of course, it's all in, the, in um, the support of, as the Buddha said, he taught suffering and the end of suffering, dukkha and the end of dukkha. And his, one of his proclamations, one of his ways of describing that, very familiar to all of you, the supreme state of sublime peace that has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. That state of heart and mind, a moment of mind-heart, of citta, that in that moment is minimally free from clinging, also supported by mindfulness, by uh, perseverance, by energy, and by uh, samadhi, by collectedness of mind. Those are the three particular supports I want to talk about tonight. But a moment of insight that suddenly seeing differently is only possible in the moment of mind that is not clinging, that doesn't already know what it's looking for that doesn't already know what it wants. There's a great line from Nisargadatta Maharaj where he said, nothing of value can happen to the mind that knows exactly what it wants. It's hard to trust that though, isn't it? So in terms of our practice here, and I know people are doing all different forms of practice and that's fine. But one place that this sense of, of non-clinging, of trust, of seeing how this quality of insight, of shift of perception arises, that it's not dependent on having a particular experience or situation. 
It's not dependent on insight is only deep, deep opening into anatta. Anything else is just some little nothing important. The, the place that we can see clearly how the mind works, how suffering's created in the mind and how it's released through clear seeing, that kind of insight can arise with any experience as its object. Now, we kind of get a little highfalutin sometimes and really down on ourselves when our experience isn't subtle enough, when we're spending our time spinning out in our personality pattern. Well, the spinning out part isn't so helpful. But when the main object of our meditation through the day is sometimes our historical personality patterns. And we think, well, I've got to get over this to get to the possibility for insight, freeing insight. I've got to get to subtlety. But the insight can reveal how the mind works in all kinds of situations, anything through the day. One uh, example I love, a woman told me this on a retreat a few years ago. In a, it was in a, like a, a two-week retreat or something, in a pretty crowded room. It was in another country. And it was uh, set up sort of like this, except the door, say the door would be behind me and no door there, and really crowded room, and she was at the back, and having an extremely restless, uncomfortable sitting. She was sleepy, she was tired, her, her body was physically uncomfortable, not like pain, you know, but that restlessness and jumpy legs and unpleasant vedana, which she was very aware of, unpleasant feeling, and she just couldn't stand it, so she stood up. Well, once she was standing up, of course, the thought came, well, why don't I just leave? That would solve the problem. The problem is I can't be here with this unpleasant, restless mind and unpleasant physical sensations. And the only way to fix it, to get rid of that suffering, is to get the heck out of here. But because it was so crowded and not with good pathways, you know, and the, often that's often why on a, on a group retreat, uh, social what's the word, social embarrassment, often keeps us staying with something long enough to actually see it in a different way, which is what happened to her. That's sort of what the structure of retreat can be helpful for. We don't just run on our habits. The only way out of unpleasant, get the heck out of here. That's what we know. Anyway, so she stood there. And then because she didn't feel comfortable to leave, she started paying attention. And all of a sudden, ah, just that simplicity of steady paying attention, being mindful of just what was there. Instead of just thinking, how can I leave? How can I leave? She said, okay, what's happening? Unpleasant sensation, aversion in the mind. And suddenly, oh, it's just uncomfortable sensation. What's the problem? You can't talk your way into that. You can't really think your way into that. And you can't make it happen again when it's happened before, as I'm sure you've all tried. But we can when there's just that steady mindfulness that let go of the clinging to wanting it different, that let go of the view, probably unspoken in our mind, that the only way, only freedom from this suffering is to get rid of the unpleasant experience. She's able to just rest at ease in the arising of that unpleasant in the situation, oh, uncomfortable sensation is like this. No problem. And she told me this because it was really a huge insight for her, really very liberating. And you see, that kind of liberation is not really about just liberating one from the unpleasantness of the moment. And it's so, it's so easy to slide back into the almost subconscious idea or view that freedom or liberation basically means getting away from that which we don't like. And then that which we don't like becomes the problem. We get into struggle with that, you know, and then our whole practice becomes how to get rid of this so I can experience some insight. Or maybe you don't even want insight. Maybe you really just want to only have pleasant feelings. <laughs> Good luck. So our practice here in terms of 
possibility of insight arising. I just want to make this point again. It can arise through any experience. You practice, and you'll know this, and those of you who've been here for some time or who will be here for some time, you might see how the practice can go in so many different directions. Sometimes each retreat has its own flavor. Sometimes if you're on a long retreat, just as you're settling in and thinking, ah, now this is how it's going to be. It's pretty calm. I'm just with the breath. There's not much emotions. And now I've got the sense of it. And suddenly, from out of nowhere, something happens, or nothing happens. Just some memory comes up, and wow, you're thrown into really deep-seated and painful historical personality patterns. And you think, well, this is hindrances. You know, I just need to no, no, I just need to get rid of this, get back to the breath, and get calm again. You know, and we're we're up in the struggle. This is in the way of my practice. I came to this really refined retreat center for a couple of months to experience subtlety, to experience calm, to finally get somewhere in my practice. If I just wanted to spin in my stories about my childhood and being hurt and how much I'm striving and how worthless I am, I could have stayed home and done that very well at home. You know the drill. It's easy not to trust that, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not about getting past anything. It's not about getting past anything. Insight arises into seeing how the mind and heart works to create suffering in this moment when it's seen accurately, whether that's impermanent, whether those personality patterns come and go due to conditions. We don't need to fight them or hate them or own them. When we stop struggling and just see, ah, that's another arising experience. I can see why this personality pattern arises. I know my whole history. It comes up in this situation. When it comes up, it, there's fear. Fear feels like this. Mindful for a while, and it goes away. And then it's lunchtime, and I'm hungry. That's the next thing to notice. Oh, huge liberating insight can arise from just being willing to rest at ease in our old, familiar personality patterns. Often they come up not about the past, but in relationship to the meditation experience itself. And this is often where we see them really deeply, our patterns of striving, our patterns of discouragement, our patterns of not even realizing we're trying to make a certain thing happen until we've hit our head against the wall for three months and realized it's not happening and something finally lets go and we go, oh, that's what it's like to relax. You know, we can't make it happen. But in any context, it can happen. So, well, there's many examples. Someone, and this I'm making up from another retreat, no one here said this, just so in case it happens to match your experience, you don't have to feel like I'm using your story, because I'm not using anyone's story. But where someone is just feeling, every time they see somebody, a huge aversion at the way someone walks or at a particular behavior that that person does. And maybe noticing the aversion and trying to work with it, which means you know maybe noting it, trying to feel it, or maybe more likely judging it or trying to pretend they don't feel it, or trying to send metta, or all the different things we do that sometimes work to get rid of the aversion and sometimes don't, until finally there's that moment of, oh, aversion's like this. We feel it, and unbidden comes a huge and really deep rush of compassion, of connection with the sense of that person, the Sense, of course, it's a projection, but the felt sense of the suffering that would lead to such behavior that's driving you crazy. And in that compassion, there's no driving you crazy. It's connectedness. It's non-separation. It's just so clearly a truer way to be in the world. 
It's just not even about me and other anymore. That's a huge insight that arises quite spontaneously through the willingness to be present with something that we think we should be beyond by now. That's just one of a million. I don't have to give a lot of examples. But so to talk a little bit about what supports this arising of insight. I mean, there's many, many things. As I said, I just want to briefly touch on um, sati, samadhi, and virya, mindfulness and uh, collectedness and energy. The kind of, virya is not the exact right one, but the kind of uh, the meditation aggregate of the Eightfold Path, you could say. But there's other things that also support insight arising in different situations. I'm not going to go any more into it because tonight, because there's not enough time. But remembering that the insight is in the service of understanding suffering and what leads to the release of suffering. The suffering's based on confusion, on delusion, on recognizing inaccurately and responding inappropriately in a way that we think will make us happy, but that actually increases our confusion and delusion. You know, that's samsara. And a big part of our habit, and I've already alluded to this quite a few times, is that we tend to look, you could say outwards, outwards, inwards, I mean, it's not really accurate, but we tend to look outwards to the content of our experience or the subtlety or the grossness of our experience, to the depth of our experience, to getting our practice to match a certain idea if we came to cultivate one-pointed concentration and what we're getting is something different. It's really easy to fall into the idea of I can't progress, I can't cultivate wisdom and insight until I get it back in line with the idea I had. So easy to kind of look out. And thinking a better object will give us a deeper insight. And insight has nothing to do with the object. I mean, our whole practice is really about, it's really about the purification of heart and mind, isn't it? I mean, the definition of a completely awakened being is one in whose heart and mind there's no more arising of greed, of hatred, dosa, of delusion. And all the various, many techniques of our so-called meditation practice, but really of our life of spiritual awareness, not just meditation practice, is in all the different skillful means is to cultivate, to incline our mind more towards non-hatred, non-greed, and non-delusion rather than reinforcing the habits of wanting, the habits of dislike or fear, the habits of delusion, which is like not knowing what the heck's going on on one hand, or else imputing everything that's going on to being about me on the other hand, two forms of confusion. And so... Our practice isn't about getting the correct object. It's not about trying to see the object more clearly. It's not about looking out to what's happening at all, but about learning to recognize and trust. And this is where the awareness, the mindfulness itself, is our uh, indispensable support and tool, but about really recognizing the quality of the chitta of the mind itself in any one moment. We may not, probably not, I mean, I don't know all your minds, but probably we're not arhats. Probably don't even, it's only an imagination what it would be to live without greed, hatred, and delusion. But for sure, we all experience many, many moments of heart and mind of chitta of conscious awareness that are not colored by wanting, by desire, that are not colored by hatred or fear, that are not colored by confusion, 
fogginess or, or making everything revolve around me. We may not notice those moments so much. We may tend to notice the greed, the confusion, the uh, aversion more. That's okay. The noticing of it is also a mindfulness. The real problem is when we not only don't notice the moments of pure heart and mind, we also don't notice the moments of kalesa, of the afflictions of greed, hatred, delusion. And then we're looking at experience through a conscious moment that's colored by that, right? Colored by wanting, colored by it's all about me, colored by fear. And when we don't recognize that that our consciousness is colored in that moment, our perceptions are off. So what really makes it... um, Sayada Utejaniya has an interesting way of talking about it that I liked a lot. He says, he uses very down-to-earth language, so I'll just use his language, but he says, uh, the, the mind, how does he say it exactly? The quality of the mind is matched with the object that it recognizes. In other words, um, insight comes to the deserving mind. I know that feeds into all oh, I'm good and I'm bad, so try and throw that away. But it said, this is really interesting, a mind that is colored by kalesa, by greed, by hatred, confusion, that we're not recognizing. That moment of mind, of chitta, that moment of uh, recognition will observe through the kalesa. And so that mind, he calls it kalesa mind, will only see concept, will take the concept to be reality, right? So when that woman was standing and feeling like, the, oh, I can't stand it. My problem is this unpleasant feeling, and the only way out of it is to get away from it. That's taking the concept to be reality. When I'm sitting and, and there's a burning sensation in my knee, and I think, my knee's killing me. I can't bear this another moment. And that's just the way it is. That's Kalesa mind, taking concept to be reality. Now, concepts are useful. Taking the concept to be reality, that's what the Buddha talks about in his three inverted perceptions that, you know, well, there's four, really, but the, the, where we see what is changing, what is impermanent, we perceive it as permanent. We perceive what is not satisfying as being satisfying. We perceive what is dukkha as being reliable as not dukkha. We perceive what is not intrinsic self-existence as being me or mine. We actually, that's the perception. That's how we view the world. It really seems true, right? And we know that it seems true. And we may have the the heard information, the suttamayapanya, that everything's changing. We may have the um, chintamayapanya, the level of Uh, reflection and contemplation where we really, it makes total sense, we really do know everything's changing. We wouldn't, you know, have an argument with someone who said, no, everything's not changing. We'd say, no, it's changing. And we've even had insight on the third level of the constant change, but the insight comes and goes. And so in the moments when there's delusion, not seeing accurately, when there's some clinging, to sense of self or wanting stability or comfort. And this clinging can be on a subtle level. We don't even know it's there sometimes because we're looking out. That's when we perceive permanence. And that's seeing concept. Second level, he says the, what he calls, this is Utejani again, what he calls Vipassana mind. But I would call a mind with clear mindfulness. Just a moment of awake mind, awake consciousness. There's mindfulness, there's, there's energy, and there's not greed or wanting, and they're not telling a story about me. In that moment, then the, we see things the way they are. We, see, we can see the concept, but we also can see underneath it, recognize. I'm just using see as a way to talk about all different modes of perception with all the different senses. 
So he says, Vipassana mind, without greed, without hatred, without delusion, observes things as they are. And that's a moment you could call Vipassana mind, a moment when, ah, insight is possible. So what supports that? Again, I've talked about uh, mindfulness. And what I'm meaning by mind, you all know what mindfulness is. I'll just say very simply, that power of the moment of awareness in a moment of consciousness, knowing what's happening without assumption or judgment or comparing, that willingness, it really just feels like a willingness to be with, as Ajahn Sumedho, his language is so great, is, oh, it's like this, whatever it is. Resting at ease in whatever arises. Oh, burning is like this. Fear is like this. You know, discouragement, thinking my practice is no good. Thoughts is like this. Discouragement feels like this. Subtle, subtle sukha is like this. Metta is like this. Verb, words of the metta, just spinning, spinning, spinning in my mind and feeling aversion is like this. You know, memories from my past is like this. Whatever. That quality of mindfulness, it brings that, that sense of trust and freshness to whatever's arising. Not looking for anything, but as Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, awareness receiving experience. No clue what the next moment experience will be. As soon as there's a sense of leaning into what we're looking for the next moment, there's a little subtle wanting there, a little subtle judgment. It's like all the freshness, all the open, all the mystery snaps shut. It's fascinating to explore that. Fascinating. And then we get interested in it, because even that's just another moment of wanting and awareness snapping shut. It's like this. There's nothing that awareness, a moment of mindfulness, cannot be present with. And so when we get, uh, at times, kind of caught up in seeing the, the calaces, the defilements, I don't like that word, the afflictions, seeing greed, seeing how much aversion there is, seeing how every second thought is about me. We can actually get reactive to that, to go, no, it's hopeless. Or we can just bring mindfulness to that. Oh, wanting feels like this. And in that moment, the wanting is simply another arising appearance. The aversion is just another arising appearance. The sense of self, another arising appearance. No problem. Nothing awareness can't be with. So that's the mindfulness. I'm just very short on these three, because each of them is like three whole talks. The mindfulness, and then the way I want to talk about virya tonight, in this, just in this simple context, in this really broad context, virya in the sense of energy, in the sense Let's see where I have it here. Not in the sense of, um, it's not a physical energy. It's a mental energy. But virya in the sense of gentle, patient persistence. Really the aspect that we often talk about of our practice, we often talk about it as continuity. But try not to jump when you hear continuity to thinking that means I have to be mindful every moment, and if I'm not, I'm not continuous, and therefore I'm a failure. I don't mean that. But the intention, the willingness to just every moment we wake up, no matter what you're doing all day, 24-7, to just show up with mindfulness for this moment, relaxed yet persistent awareness. This is really huge because it's this continuity of awareness that allows a natural momentum of mindfulness to begin to develop. You know how, as you practice, at first it's remembering to bring awareness to this, bring awareness to this, bring awareness to this, and it gets easier. 
right? You've all experienced it does get easier. I'm not saying it stays easier, but it gets easier. And there's times when that momentum actually takes off on its own and you don't actually feel like you are putting in any effort at all. It's the steady, gentle continuity that allows this momentum to happen. And it also allows the opportunity to be here for the completion as a whole process unfolds, where we actually might see, this is what allows insight to arise, see a process begin, go through all its moves, and actually end, see the effects of that process, see the causes of that process. It's only continuity of awareness that allows this aspect of reality to present itself. So in terms, for example, of anicca, these vipalasas, these inverted perceptions that the Buddha talked about, take anicca, it's kind of the most obvious one, of seeing permanence where there is no permanence. Even though we know the mind is doing that, it's still so difficult to see through because the habit of imputing permanence and seeing the perceptions of imputing permanence are just so deeply habituated that it's just easy to miss the impermanence. And one of the really strong um, supports for the insight into impermanence, all the insights, is the continuity of awareness, the steadiness of awareness. We don't have the conscious power, would that we did, to decide, now I'm going to see impermanence, right? Today, I'm going to work on anatta. And by this evening, I will be perceiving, moment to moment, arising and passing away of all phenomena. I mean, would that that worked. I'm sure we've all tried it one way or the other. It doesn't work. Now I will move into deep samadhi. I have a deep intention not to move from my breath. So, you know, good luck. It takes effort, but not the effort of striving. Not at all. When I'm talking about virya here, patience, persistence, the willingness to keep showing up this moment, this moment, this moment. But virya in terms of wise energy is really have to see what's the attitude in the mind that's feeding that energy. And this is where we so often get into knots in our life, but here in in our meditation practice. Again, this is the way Tejaniya talks about it because it's very... Uh, very simple. Wise virya, again, when it's coupled with mindfulness, when it's coupled with a moment of mind and heart that isn't fed by, colored by, confusion, wanting, or greed. And it's actually really simple to notice if we remember to notice. So when this energy of just this gentle, persistent patience Willingness to be with what is, whatever is, that's real virya. That leads to continuity. When we have enormous energy, we're pulling it up. It feels like resolution. It's really strong willpower. You're here for every moment, but you check. And all that energy trying to focus, trying to see clearly, when you really look, what's feeding it? You see, well, you're wanting something particular to happen. You're expecting something particular to happen, or you're looking for. One thing I've seen myself do a lot, and I even think I'm just being mindful of whatever's arising. Whatever arises is fine, but I need to see it more clearly. Behind that needing to see it more clearly, I spend a whole retreat go, wow, that's nothing but craving. So I thought, I mean, completely choiceless, whatever arises, but see it clear. That's not clear enough. Lots of virya. Wise virya, no. Craving. Ah, that's craving. Craving's like this. Unclear is like this. And there's no problem. That's the insight. That's the release of the suffering in that moment. Or the reverse. We're bringing up all our commitment 
and we're kidding ourselves. We don't quite let ourselves see we're being with this to make something stop happening, right? To get rid of something. Okay, pretty clear. That's aversion. That's dosa. Or confusion. Well, confusion, we forget to check because that's the nature of confusion. We just, one level, basic level, you don't even know what's going on. You don't know what mindfulness is being with. You don't know what awareness is with. Okay, that's, that's confusion. That's moha delusion. But also, the, the more subtle and more even um, deeper level of moha is making it about me. What's happening is either me or mine. Wrong view. That's another level of confusion that will lead us into one of the other two. Because it's me or mine, it either needs to get better or it needs to go away. So you don't have greed or aversion without confusion. You can have confusion without greed or aversion. Just like, duh, I don't know what's going on. So this quality of virya, not trying to make things turn out the way you want them to be, but this, this total willingness to be totally present with this moment, every moment, without expectation. And that's an enormous and amazing power that leads to the steadiness of awareness that actually allows to, us to see through these inverted, these confused perceptions. About sense of self, which is a great place to see it, um, ideas we have about ourselves, ideas we have about our practice. A story I tell a lot, a friend who uh, was a cook at a, well, she cooked a lot. She used to cook a lot at retreats. And she was known by herself and by her friends as being a, quote, aversive person. A lot of anger, a lot of critical mind. And so she came one day and she's saying, you know, she was saying to the other cooks what an aversive personality she is. And they were all going, yeah, it's true. You really are. And even though that was her, her Sakaya Ditti, her personality view, it was you know, still a little demoralizing to have everyone agreeing so fervently. And so she came and was just, it was just a one hour sitting. She came to one of the sittings on the retreat. She told me this later and she said she sat down and she'd done you know, years and years of practice. So she sat down and said, okay, I have this view. I'm aversive. I'm just gonna be present moment by moment by moment with everything that comes up. Watching her mind, watching her emotions, watching her ideas. And she said it was fascinating. She said, yeah, quite a few aversive critical thoughts came up about herself, about others, about what was arising in the moment. She said, but that was maybe only 10%. There were plenty of generous thoughts. There were moments of love. There were lots of times of calm and concentration. There were moments of, you know, all kinds of stuff. She said, how come she picked those 10% of aversive thoughts? And they weren't all in a block either, you know, and said, that's who I am. What allowed her to see through that was just that the mindfulness and the virya in the term of patient, persistent willingness to be here, be here, be here, for whatever's arising without judgment. That quality of virya, and one other uh, definition of virya I'd like to add to it is courage. Courage meaning not shrinking back from the difficult. It's actually one of the commentarial descriptions of virya. Not shrinking back from the difficult. You know, kind of go, ah, oh, I just, that's too much. That moves into sloth and torpor, actually. It's just a little too hard. That doesn't mean get out a hammer and hit what's happening. It just means that willingness to be here. So mindfulness, supported by virya, is not discriminatory. You know, not choosing, I'll be with this and not with that. The steadiness of continuity is what allows for deeper aspects of reality to reveal itself. I read a line by Colette recently where she said, look long at what pleases you and even longer at what pains you. I like that. Just feel like if you put in, in and also at what you don't notice as being pleasant or not. It's a lovely description 
of mindfulness, non-discriminatory, non-hierarchical, just what's happening now. And the steadiness of the virya and the steadiness of the mindfulness, and it starts to get that momentum, it, it cultivates, it turns into samadhi, often translated as concentration. But here again, in this broader context, I want to talk about it not, not only as the kind of absorption, focused, one-pointed, deep samadhi. That's often what we think about when we talk about concentration. And I mean, in all these years of talking to people meditating, I couldn't even begin to say how often, out of all the things and all the qualities that are being cultivated in the practice, in the mind and heart, all the experiences, all the insights, how much people pick out this one factor of concentration and using the English word on purpose because it has all kinds of connotations for different people. How often people come in and say, my concentration isn't good, which tells us basically, as a teacher, it tells you basically nothing except that the person's judging. That's about all that tells you. Or my concentration is good. It also tells you very little. Good compared to what? Bad compared to what? And why is that the one thing we single out? So I'm saying this because often concentration is thought about only in terms of absorption, in terms of deep one-pointedness. In this level of samadhi that I'm talking about, that in terms of feeding insight, it isn't necessary always for that deep level of one-pointedness. Samadhi is also translated as actually a stability of mind, a collectedness. But the collectedness can be a steadiness, a stability that doesn't fall into reactivity with whatever's arising. That steadiness of awareness on objects that can be changing with greater or lesser rapidity. The Pali word that Mahasi Sayadaw used was kanika samadhi, momentary samadhi. In terms of this, the, the mindfulness and that gentle perseverance of no matter what's happening through the day, it cultivates, it develops quite naturally, the steadiness, a kind of a, it's a peaceful, relaxed kind of quality of mind, but it's stable. Stable in that things don't throw it off so much. You can, you can feel it. It takes a little longer to develop because you can't develop it by forcing. And so just that moment to moment to moment to moment. And after a while, the mind becomes non-distractable in that nothing is a distraction. Everything can be included. As Ajahn Sumedho says about mindfulness, mindfulness is the point that includes. This quality of samadhi is a flexible, light, stable quality of mind that just isn't thrown off. It's not fragile, it's not brittle, it's not heavy. And when we do get thrown off, it comes back really quickly. Just a quick example, I was practicing um, with Utejaniya in Burma, and in his meditation center, there's not silence. And so people can come up and talk to you, and you're practicing in a very open way with just whatever's arising, not, not deliberately focusing on any anchor at all. And I was doing walking meditation and just being with whatever. And someone came up to me and started talking to me. And I'd been there long enough that at least I didn't get into aversion. It really takes us kind of Western, heavy-duty, Vipassana meditators, a little bit of time to get over this sense that my practice is being bothered when someone would come up and talk to me. So I was past that. They came up and talked. I turned and talked and then went back. And very interesting, my mind actually was more present and settled after the talking rather than less. And I really got this sense of this flexible yet stable, non-distractable quality of samadhi that develops. And so these qualities of mindfulness, of this flexible samadhi, and of continuity, persistent patience, that steadiness of awareness, are qualities that allow for this non-clinging shift of perception, what we call insight, to arise. 
So I'll just end with a short quotation from Francisco Varela, the scientist. The purpose of calming the mind in Buddhism is to render the mind able to be present with itself long enough to gain insight into its own nature and functioning. Just learning to be present with our mind, no matter what it's doing. Wisdom arises by itself. We don't have to create it. In fact, we can't. We can just trust the steadiness of awareness. Wisdom arises by itself. It's actually a huge relief. So let's just sit quietly for a moment, and then we'll close with chanting together. <clears throat> 